Tremendous Upside features real talk about mental health. Today we talk about disordered eating and the realities of bipolar disorder. We also talk about sex. I want you to know that before we get into it. Susie Favor Hamilton dominated the track for decades. She's a three-time Olympian. She's got nine NCAA championships. She was the fastest female middle distance runner in the world. Like so many athletes, her sport was her whole life. But sometimes, that's too much. I was using running my entire life as the drug to make me happy. I'm Shamiqua Holsclaw. From American Public Media, this is Tremendous Upside. Real talk from athletes about mental health. Today we have Susie Favor Hamilton. She went from being the fastest woman in the world to literally falling flat on her face in front of everyone. She has the lead and Susie Favor Hamilton has fallen down. And people can look at it and say, well, you, you lost a race, it's just a race. But when your life is based on a race and that's all your life is, it's, it's, what, what now? I shouldn't even be around. She had to find a life after sports. When you're a professional athlete, that can feel impossible. She was also dealing with undiagnosed bipolar disorder. Her struggles became very public when it came out that she'd been working as an escort in Las Vegas. Susie and I talked about her career, her drive, finally getting diagnosed, and what it took to build a life outside of running. It started in fifth and sixth grade. I beat all the boys in the school when we'd do, like, the timed mile. So I'd kick their ass. <laughs> and that's kind of when the teachers started to notice and the coaches. And um, they're like, oh, she's got some extreme talent. Teachers were also giving me, instead of Ds, I magically got Cs. Because people started to see this talent. and We've got to help her along to get a scholarship. But also when I was really young, fifth and sixth grade, I would pretend I was a horse. And I would run around the nature trails by my house. And truly, that was the best time for my athleticism because I was running for the pure joy, the, the pure love yes. of it. And I loved the way it made me feel. Right. So when you were you were young, it's just, uh, the legend is being built, we'll say. What was your social life like? I want to know, like young Susie outside of sports. Come on. <laughs> I was pretty perfect. I didn't, you know, I didn't associate with the kids that were doing wrong stuff. I wasn't experimenting like normal kids right. do. I, I didn't experiment with sex. I didn't, um, I think I had one beer um, in high school. Um, and that was like, oh, my God, this tastes awful. But I, I really had to keep this squeaky clean, clean image. And yeah. that was what I wanted. So what were the coaches saying to you? Here you are, you know, this amazing young athlete. I want to think about those high school years. You right. know, what, what was uh, the talk? Um, the talk was I was going to burn out. There's no way this young girl can run that fast forever. She's going to burn out in high school. So I kept hearing all these whispers, and I kept thinking, what do you mean I'm going to burn out? It's not possible. I love this too much. 
So high school was a period where I really enjoyed running, but it also became the start of the pressure for me because okay. I never lost. Wow, never. Never. Mm -mm. Oh, my God. That's and so every time you're on the line, you're expected to win. Even though I was so good, mm -hmm. I, I didn't really believe it. I didn't have this confidence like most athletes. I was always in fear of losing. Okay. Did you notice any mental health issues growing up? I did. And I didn't notice, I had no idea that these were clues to what would develop for me later. But I grew up, um, I had an eating disorder, which is very common in distance runners, middle distance runners, but also you see it in bipolar. Um, because eating disorders have nothing to do with food. People don't quite understand that. It has everything to do with control. So the only thing in my life as a young girl I could control was my food. And if somebody like my father or mother said, you need to eat that, I would say, no way. I'm not because you're trying to tell me what to do. Okay. So food became the source of control. People don't understand since we're looked at as being good, as being like natural, as you're coached, that whole mentality. If you do something bad, they're here to protect you. If you're having temperature, how, how can we make it perfect for Shamiqua or, or, or Susie? And I think that doesn't allow us to um, uh, develop healthy coping skills. Right, you because know? you're always taken care of. Right. So as a as you're coming into your own as a high school athlete, but now you're at a big university and you're having all this stardom. Everybody, I'm sure, around campus knows <laughs> who you are. How did you deal with all that pressure and success? Well, I went to the University of Wisconsin because they were the number one team at that time. They had just won NCAAs in cross country. Okay. So I went to the school thinking, okay, I'm not going to be the number one runner. This is going to be great. The pressure is going to be taken off of me. Well, I was the number one runner. As soon right. as I got on the team, I beat the girl who was always number one. So all of a sudden, pressure. Wait, as a freshman? As a freshman, I win, and, um, I win NCAAs in the mile, and now the eyes are all on me. Um, I had an eating disorder before I went into college mm -hmm. because I felt out of control. Right. And now in college, it's, it's getting worse because I totally have no control over my races, at least I felt, because I still didn't have a voice. So um, it, it was a struggle for me to not feel pressure. It, it was always there. Pressure, always yeah. there. Did, do you think your teammates, I mean, I know you're an individual, but the track team's always together and stuff, training together. Did you think anyone else knew could, or could have helped you? No. The, I Because I didn't realize I had a problem. I right, really okay. didn't. I think at that age, it's hard to see. You, It's hard to see into yourself. That was really difficult. If I had a magic wand and I could wave it and, you know, it would have been easy. But coaches, they saw problems, but they ignored it. Yeah, because you're yeah. good. You're yeah. good. They we don't titles. <laughs> right. We don't want to mess anything up. Right. But yet this probably this behavior isn't good, but don't don't talk about it. Susie was struggling privately, but on the track, she was outperforming everyone. She won the Big Ten Conference Female Athlete of the Year Award three times in a row. The same year she graduated, the conference named the award after Susie. After she graduated, her Olympic career began. You went to Olympics three times. What was your uh, Olympic experience like mentally? My first Olympics, I was so elated just to make the team. But I was in no mental shape to know what it took 
to handle the pressure. So that Olympics was a learning experience. I didn't make it out of the first round. And there's three rounds in the 1500. Okay. 96 was my second Olympics, okay, and I made it in the event I wasn't as good in, which was the half mile. I still ran really well, but I didn't make it to the final. And that coach at that time, we weren't working so well together. I remember him pulling me aside before the Olympics as I was training, and he told me, again, it was a man telling me what to do. He said to me, you cannot have sex the day before a race and the day of because you're going to lose your testosterone. I'm what? Like, what? Where's this guy getting this information? You lose your testosterone. I, so, I thought it was so, something to do with your legs. No, exactly. <laughs> or your muscles. Right. You're going to wear your body out. Um, so after that, we left. We left that coach shortly mm-hmm. after the Olympics. Um, my first coach in 92, again, I don't know why all this sex was geared towards me, but my first coach in 92 told me I should wear two bras so my boobs wouldn't bounce because I had big boobs for a runner. I totally didn't have the runner's body. Right. And so he told me you should wear two bo- two bras. And, the, and another coach was filming my breasts. Oh, my goodness. In college. This just, is ridiculous. Just my breasts. And so I had this this problem with the coaches, the men coaches in my life were trying to control me. I didn't realize it at the time. It took therapy to realize that I no longer wanted men to control me anymore in my life. Wow. And you know, you being an Olympic caliber athlete, you know, I know how the endorsements work. And again, I have a lot of friends who are high level Olympic athletes. And how, I mean, how was that? How, how was that being, you know, um, kind of thrown into the spotlight? You You know, it's it's so interesting because I was so humble in my career. I always, I didn't think I was good enough. And, and my husband always said that to me. He's like, you know, you need to be a little more, you know, um, confident in yourself. And I, I lack that. Um, I think just because I felt my life was so out of control. When Susie headed for her final Olympics, all her struggles that she'd been hiding for years spilled out on the track. So I had a panic attack in my 2000, my last Olympics. Mm -hmm. I went into that race. I had just run the fastest time in the world two months before that. So I was the one to win the gold medal. Nike had just done a commercial for me, and that was airing during the Olympics during my race. The pressure was enormous, and it was three rounds. I was always a great runner when it came to one round. I could win one round, but three rounds in five days is really impossible. But that was the downfall of my life. That was the beginning because at that race, going into the final, I knew I was in trouble. And I'm on the starting line, cameras in my face, and the anxiety is building, building. I get in the race. uh, I'll just fast forward through the race. The last 200, it hit me that I wasn't going to win. I'm running this race. I'm in the lead. And all that's going through my mind is you're not going to win. Wow. You're going to lose. You you really are in trouble. You psyched yourself out, right? Completely. And, And I was so... When you have a panic anxiety attack... Everything is drained from your body. So I'm just draining, depleting myself. I make it to 100 meters to go, and a runner passes me. Another one passes me. The third one passes me. There's no Olympic medal. And I was there to come home with—that was was devastating. Mm -hmm. 
I'm I'm the worst failure in the entire world. Hundred me when these girls passed me, I told myself just fall. It was such a split second. There was no thinking before that I was going to fall, and I just did it. We'll be back with Susie in a minute. Tremendous Upside is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. We have real conversations about mental health on this show. That's so important to do because not enough people are talking about this stuff, and it's serious. The good news is that people can and do get better. They get help. That's why we need to make it okay to talk openly. It can be an awkward conversation, but makeitok.org is full of information you can use, like what to say or not to say, and stories from people who tell you what it's like to live with depression, anxiety, and other mental illnesses. Go to makeitok.org where you can take the pledge to make it okay. Thank you so much to Health Partners and to Make It Okay for joining us in fighting stigma so we can all get better. We're back. In the last lap of Susie's last Olympics, she watched the other runners pass her, one after another. She psyched herself out and told herself to fall. And I remember, I always tell people because I remember the sensation of hitting the track and my cheek on the surface. It's, it's weird how I could feel the surface of the track. I think it, it all was um, just hitting me what I had just done. And I'm laying there telling myself, I'm an idiot. You are the worst person in the world. You suck. All these negative thoughts. Right. And, I've, and I'm like, just, you have to get up. You have to finish so you can at least say you finished the you Olympics. Finish, right. And um, I fell, got up, crossed the finish line. I fell again because the media was all standing there with microphones ready to, let's get the interview from Susie, why she fell. And so I passed out. Um, partially, I made myself pass out, but I also, in this panic attack, was out of it. Yeah. For two hours, I was in my own world, and I didn't realize it had been two hours. In my mind, it was 10 minutes. Right. Um, but I wouldn't open my eyes. They're, they're, they're back in the medical area thinking I'm having a heart attack because oh my, my heart gosh. was just crazy out of control. And I could hear all the voices around me in that medical area. And as soon as the voices diminished, which was two hours, then I opened my eyes and I realized I didn't want to be around. I didn't even want to, I didn't want to exist anymore. That's how bad that situation felt for me. And people can look at it and say, well, you you lost a race. It's just a race. But when your life is based on a race, race, and that's all your life is, it's, it's what, what now? I shouldn't even be around. It's interesting because my coach, in the back of his mind, he knew what happened. He never told me that until later on, years later. But he he knew that I had done this on purpose. (sighs) My husband didn't know for a good year. I didn't want to tell anybody. So embarrassed. Embarrassed. So much shame. Yeah, so much shame. And the shame is myself telling me I'm a bad person, but also community saying, people going, why didn't you win? What, what, what was wrong with you? You're so good. Why didn't you win? And um, it was the beginning of the downfall, without a doubt.
So after after I fell and and like I said, it was the downfall. What I did next was okay. I have to train for my fourth Olympics because that's that's what I do. Even though my mind said I'm done, I don't want this anymore. Everybody around me wanted this, and so I started to train again. Ran the Olympic trials in my fourth Olympics. Um, I got injured, but the injury wasn't that bad. But I decided I didn't want to go into the final because I knew there was a huge chance that I would repeat that same performance that I did in Sydney. And I wasn't willing to take that. I wasn't willing to go through that again. But looking back, I definitely could have run that race because right. the adrenaline's going, oh, you know, yeah. you've had injuries. You, you, yeah, you could have through that. Yeah. yeah. But I knew my brain couldn't. Yes. And so it was easier to back out. Again, another failure. And now you're ending your career on this. This is the, I was so good, but now I'm, I'm, I'm really not good anymore in my mind. I couldn't look at all the accomplishments I did. And um, so then it was get a real job. That transition. That's hard. (laughs) A real job? What is that? Okay, we were laughing about this, but actually this is one of the scariest moments for an athlete. Stop running, stop playing basketball, get a real job. It's terrifying. It feels like changing your whole identity. Susie and her husband threw themselves into the real estate business and started a family. What happened is after I had the birth of my child, something changed in me dramatically. They thought I had uh, postpartum depression. Really, I had bipolar Right. But they didn't know that. Within 10 minutes, they gave me an antidepressant. This is just my family ten, doctor. Ten, 10 minutes. 10 minutes. Oh. I was given Zoloft. Zoloft slowly took away my inhibitions. It brought out an incredible hypersexuality in me that I had never had. I had my only partner, my husband, um, my entire life. I was so focused on my running that I thought, okay, if I have sex, I'm going to get pregnant. My whole life is over. I can't run. I can't perform. So sex became a very big taboo in my in my thinking. But after they gave me the antidepressant, literally, I started to go crazy, but in I was happy. I was alive. I would still have down spirals that I was very angry, right? Um, but mainly high. Angry, angry about what? Oh, what I could about? switch moods so quickly. Okay. It, it would it, the silliest, ridiculous thing would yeah. set me off, right? And just you know, it made no sense. Susie and her husband decided to open their marriage. They hired an escort one night in Vegas. Susie really liked it and went back for more. Her husband Mark helped her book the trips even though some of it made him worry. He stayed in Wisconsin. Soon, Susie decided it was her fantasy to be an escort, too. She called the woman in Vegas who had arranged the escort they used. And I met her, and I said, you know what, the reason I asked you here is because I'd like to be an escort for a day. I want to try it. Did she know anything about she, who you And were, I told her, I go, I, I'm an athlete. I'm kind of, I'm kind of known in the running world. Right. She's like, oh, no big deal. So in her mind, she, you know, she didn't know who I was. So big deal. And the next day she had me see their best client. And one appointment turned out to be two, turned out to be three, turned out to be a hundred. It, it just kept escalating. Did anybody recognize you? It, one time there was a limo driver 
who recognized me. I was with a client. And I remember asking the limo driver, I said, by the way, could you get me some drugs? And um, I'm an escort. Like, I just told this guy. Mm -hmm. And he goes, oh, my God, I know who you are. He was a runner himself. He was like really good friends with the guy who was running USA Track and Field at that time. It was so bizarre how small that world was. Um, he he obviously kept it quiet. Okay. Yeah. All right. Not everyone kept quiet. One of Susie's clients outed her, and she was confronted by a reporter. The story went everywhere. Shocking story of the Olympic athlete who was leading a double life as a high-priced escort in Las Vegas. And where you got it? Yeah, this story is unbelievable. Susie Faber-Hamilton is a three-time Olympian, but fans had no so idea. So when did you finally Olympics. get the mental health care that you needed? Right after I was outed, I had no choice. Okay. And I thought, okay, I'll go to the doctor. I'll make this look like um, I have something wrong with me because right. I didn't think I had anything wrong with me. So I'll go along with everybody. I'll go to the doctor. Right. And so I played along with it, but everything stayed the same. I was still escorting even after I was outed. Wow. Because that was my coping mechanism. Nothing changed after I was outed. Absolutely nothing changed. Did it make you feel like, was it? It, it made me feel alive. Alive, okay. And my life is out of control, completely out of control. They're taking, they took awards away from me. The commissioner of the Big Ten emails and said, we're taking your award away. And basically my husband emailed him back and said, listen, could you just wait? We, my, my wife is in a terrible, terrible place and we can explain more, but you need to give us some time. He said his response in the email was good luck. That was it. Good luck. Wow, so insensitive. So now you're getting shamed by the commissioner who wants right. to hear. He doesn't care what your story mm -hmm. is. It's like you're out of here. At least a little compassion. Right, definitely. I, I do understand why they took the award away. Mm -hmm. um, I, I get that. Here is a prostitute who is labeled with the Big Ten Athlete of the Year award. Right. So mm -hmm. I get that. Right. But just show compassion. Definitely. Because you, you were no, sick. I was sick. You were sick. And people don't look at that way. You know, the one thing I wish I could change, I can't, but it was never done intentionally, is the people that I hurt. My parents and my husband's parents. Oh. I hurt them. But you know what? I've come to realize I owe nobody else an apology. Right. I owe nobody. Right. When we met, I, it was in Portland. It was in Portland, Oregon. Yes. And I was listening to you speak, and I just remember you talking about the uh, hypersexuality, and it just hit me like, oh, my God, this woman is real. Like, a lot of people that experience um, bipolar disorder go through that. I, I went through it. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, oh, my God, like, where did this come from? And right. I'm having different, you know, partners and stuff, and people are constantly judging me. And I, it's like I couldn't control it. Right. People don't get that. It is uh, mental health. It's just like if you're an alcoholic, uh, you need help. You need to go through a program to, to be able to get off the alcohol. Same with drugs. You get addicted to drugs. You need help. I became the sole purpose of my being and feeling good was sex. That, that mania, it's like, it's something that feeds you and you just want that high and you're just kind of going through the motions. And then when you come down and see things clearly, you're like, oh my God, I'm like, I'm really split. It's like two different people. Right. 
and because of the mood swings, people always say, well, what is bipolar? I'm like, it's mood swings, but they're, they're not a casual mood swing. They're very drastic. And the manic uh, mood swings always involve risky behaviors. Right. Definitely. Very risky. It and you is. don't see it that way. Mm-hmm. And my husband, when everything came out, he stood by me. It was really difficult, but he made this decision in his mind. He said, what I'm going to do is get my wife healthy and then we'll deal with, do we get a divorce or not? He focused on the illness, not the behaviors. Mm -hmm. When sex comes involved or somebody has an affair, so you know, it's easy for the one spouse just to walk out the door because they don't want to deal with the pain. So my husband took the route of dealing with the pain and fighting for our relationship. Definitely, definitely. Obviously, you guys got back on track, though. We did. And it took a—it was a year of hell to get to where we are now. Right. But after I was outed, that next year is a whole nother story. That's probably the best story is from when I was outed to where I am now. Okay. And that's the love story part of of the journey and how somebody was able to look past that year and— want to help his wife. He's the one who gave me my life back. He is amazing. Mark is the man. <laughs> and, and I feel like I feel like so much of his life was dedicated to me. I mean, he has his things, um, his passions, but still so much of his life is helping me to get to this place that I am now. Right. And how many people can say that they do that? So his his mind is the selfless mind I've ever met of anybody. He he his goal is my daughter and myself. Right. That's beautiful. Yeah. So what's the day to day like for the Hamiltons, we'll say? <laughs> my my day to day life is um yoga every morning, nine AM to ten. So what uh what type of yoga? It's uh Hot yoga, hundred and three okay, degrees. Yeah, okay, hot. But it's intense. I mean, they swear at you. This isn't like yin yoga. Okay. This isn't meditative. You have weights. They'll say, "Get your mm, go in your ass." Right. And then um, my day is, you know, being the wife, cooking, but also I travel. I climb mountains. I just climbed Mount Whitney to the top. Yeah, I thought I saw a picture. Highest doing peak that. in the continental U.S. If you're up for it next year, I'm going to be doing it again. <laughs> it takes 15 hours. You get up at 3, 3 a.m. Uh-huh. and you hike all day for 15 hours. You get to Whoa. that top. Right. But I have to say, reaching the peak of Mount Whitney this mm-hmm. summer was one of the highlights in my life. Oh, wow. Isn't that amazing? Yeah, how, I'm writing this down. And I'm <laughs> I'm doing it. My goal is to take somebody new every year to experience what that high is. Right. Um, I want people to see that there's so much more to, especially running, there's so much more out there in this world to right. explore. And like I said, it was one of the best highs I've had. I'd rather do that than go back and be in the Olympics any day. There are other highs than just being the best. That can be hard to learn, but that's what this show is about, getting help and building a life. Not one that depends on the next mile, the next basket, the next title. There's more than that, and we gotta talk about it. On the next episode, one of the greatest point guards to come out of New York City, Kenny Anderson. 
money and success, it didn't matter. Um, I went a little nuts, you know what I mean? I, I went nuts because I didn't know how to handle myself for about three years. I just, I slept and I woke up and I didn't know what I wanted to do. Tremendous Upside is a production of American Public Media. I'm your host, Shamiqua Holsclaw. John Moe created the show. Phyllis Fletcher is our editor. Producers include Chrissy Pease, Tracy Mumford, and Christina Lopez. Our recording engineer at Studio 637 in Hermosa Beach was Alex Lockwood. Corey Shreppel mixed this episode. Our theme song is by Riley Mackin. Tremendous Upside is supported by Health Partners and MakeItOK.org. Make It OK is a campaign to start conversations and stop the stigma around mental illnesses. MakeItOK.org has information that can help you and your loved ones. Starting a conversation can be awkward. Make It OK has tips on what to say or not to say. It has stories of hope from people who have been there. You can take the pledge to Make It OK at makeitok.org. Again, if you or someone you know needs someone to talk to, trained volunteers are available. You can text the word HOME to 741-741 or call 1-800-273-TALK. Any time of the day, someone's there, and it's free. <laughs>